overlapping a couple of verses from last week. Last week we were John 3, 1 through 15, and now we're going to read John 3, 14 through 21. This is God's holy and infallible word. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. That's God's word with our our focus on on John 3.16. In that verse, John 3.16, it is the most famous verse in all of Scripture. And that's not an exaggeration. We, We know the favorite verses of many great pastors and theologians. For John Wesley, it was Zechariah 3.2, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Which is a pretty cool verse, very descriptive of God saving us. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said his favorite was Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Another great verse and makes sense if you know about his life a little bit. For Martin Luther, it was Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. But John 3.16 is everyone's favorite verse, and all favorite verses really are second to this ultimate verse in all of Scripture. It's a verse that gives us the clear gospel message, and it also lifts up the love of God. And, And the reality is that the simple gospel is quite simply about the love of God. And we talked about that a few weeks ago, that the church's mission, the church's message is simple. It should be simple. Not simplistic, but simple, straightforward. And it's possible for the church to muddy our mission with complexities, to vary our vision with these non-essentials, but the gospel message really can be boiled down to the word love. We could expand on that a little bit and say it's about the love of God, and we could expand on that a little bit more and say it's about the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is what John 3.16 is all about. It was love, love for a woman that made me go shopping for a diamond ring, oh, about 16, 17 years ago now. And yes, the woman was Sarah, At the time, I was just an innocent lad, innocent about the ways of the world and the ways of love, and I was going to seminary, interning at Bethany Christian Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan, doing especially high school youth work, leading young couples ministry and singles groups. There was this guy at Bethany who always wore a gold chain around his neck, and it was usually a button-up shirt and 
and you could kind of see the hairs on his chest and this gold chain. He was in his 50s. Vern Edward, very, he hunted in Africa every so often. Crazy trophy rooms in his house, several of them, like an elephant's foot, I mean, lion, the animals you see in Africa. Amazing. On the side, he sold diamonds. I'm pretty, this was, I'm pretty sure this was all legit. <laughs> wholesale prices. At least he gave me a wholesale price, which was perfect for a seminary student. So I went to his house one night, and he took out his, he had this little box of diamonds all in their envelopes, all, you know, I don't know what they call it, but they're graded or whatever, and, and the details of, of, of the price and the number of carats, all that sort of stuff. There, he had maybe about 25 diamonds or so. A few of them were within my price range, and, and we focused on those. He took them out. He, he showed me how to look at them very carefully with a powerful magnifying glass of some sort. It was really amazing and really cool, not something I don't think, I don't think you can normally do when you just go to a regular store. And as we narrowed it down, I, I looked at each the diamond from all different angles with light coming through in different ways. It was beautiful. It was one of the coolest experiences of my life buying that diamond. I mean, it was great to give her the diamond too. That was better. But, but it was really, really cool to do this. And I tell you about that because this morning, what I want to do is hold up the idea of the love of God I want to hold it up like a diamond and view it from a number of different angles. We have a gems club in our church, and we see the gems this morning. Well, the Bible is full of gems as well, in the sense that certain verses really stand out and are memorable. In John 3.16, and the love of God It's the gem to beat all gems. It's the gem de la gem of the Bible, I would say. The thing about diamonds that's hard to see with the naked eye is that there really is no perfect diamond. Even if they're very, very tiny, there are little clouds in them. See, I learned all of this from Vern. And and honey, as, as much as I hate to say it, and as thoughtful and careful as I was about buying your diamond, it's not perfect. And it still actually kind of bugs me. I know now in detail, because I looked at it, of, of a cloud that's in a certain spot. But it's inevitable. This is true of any diamond. It's just a question of how big or small those flaws or clouds are that determine a diamond's worth, right? And, of course, how big or small it is. But it's different with the gems of God's Word. They are perfect, They are without flaw because God's word is perfect. God's word is infallible. God's word is inerrant. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect and so is his love. So what do we see when we hold up the love of God to the light and to the microscope, this perfect gem of all gems? First of all, we see the tense of God's love. Tense. We're talking about grammar now, and this is a little shout out to English teacher Nan Lurup, who's over there signing as she always does. A little grammar lesson. This is there's a future tense, 
he will love, a present tense, he loves, and a past tense, loved, he loved. Which one of those do we have here in John 3.16? We have loved, past tense. That he loves us is amazing. But that he loved us, that's incredible. A father loves his children. That just makes sense. That's obvious. But God loved us before we became his children. That's not something we can totally grasp, but it is totally true. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe a little picture of this is how when a baby is born, the parents, we love that baby immediately, right? And it's because we love that child already when she was in her mother's womb, right? But even that little picture, that illustration doesn't do the love of God justice because in Jeremiah 31.3, God says to his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love into eternity. And Ephesians 1 is a chapter that gives us some more details on that. That it's a love that chose us to be his children even before the creation of the world. So that is something else. The tense of God's love. That he loved us. Also as we hold up this gem, you notice the magnitude of God's love. The magnitude of God's love. And here I'm talking about only one little word. And it's the word so. And that tells us the magnitude of God's love. God so loved. What does that little word so entail? The reality is no one can define or measure that word so. Science measures things and records those measurements. In this case, so is referring to something that is without measure. Its depth, its length, its height, its breadth, the love of God, it cannot be measured. It's infinite, it's eternal, it's everlasting, it's boundless. Next, I want you to notice the scope of God's love. The scope. The scope is the world. Not just ancient Israel, where God focused things in the Old Testament, but the love goes beyond that to the whole world. And the fact that John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, a Jew, wrote this gospel in Greek, that shows us that. Because Greek was the language of the day, kind of like English nowadays. And that showed us that the message of God's love and God's love was now for everybody. Men, women, boys, girls, Every nation, every tongue, every color. The love of God is for pleasant, likable people. The love of God is for mean, ornery people. It's for hardened criminals. It's for church-going folks like you here this morning, maybe. It's for conservatives. It's for gasp liberals. The world means the good news goes out to everyone. That's how expansive the scope of the love of God is. Fourth, Fourth, we see the nature of God's love. It's a giving love. He gave. And the reality is that true love 
is never selfish. It's always giving. It seeks what is best for others. It gives. Real love doesn't take and take and take and suck energy dry. Love gives and gives, and that's true of God's love for sure. God gave. How did he give? What did he give? Well, he gave his only begotten son. Fifth, we see the sacrificial nature of God's love. And we're going to spend just a little bit of more time on this one than the others. He gave his very best. He gave his son, Jesus, even to death on a cross. If, if you look all throughout the New Testament and you, you find the many, many verses that there are on the love of God, in most cases, you find the cross talked about nearby. Excuse me. You talk about and see the cross talked about. So in other words, the love of God and the cross go hand in hand. Verse 14 refers to the cross when it talks about Jesus being lifted up just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. Back in Numbers, we read about these venomous snakes that attacked God's people Israel in the desert. God told their leader, who was Moses, he said, raise up a bronze snake on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a venomous snake just needed to look to that bronze snake on a pole, and he would be healed. And what that was was a picture of Jesus who would come, because all who are bitten by sin's deadly bite are called by God's word just to look to Jesus raised up on a cross, and they're healed. Interesting that John says he must be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And that means there was something essential about Jesus coming to live and die. And what was essential about it is that in order for us to be saved, the claims of God's justice had to be satisfied. Sin needed to be paid for. God couldn't just let it go because of who he is. He is just. So the cross of Christ had to happen because of the justice and righteousness and holiness of God. But then in verse 16, we learn that more is going on. The cross is also the showcase of the love of God. Not only is justice, but also is love. Not more than the justice of God, because God isn't any more of one of his attributes than the other. In other words, God is not more merciful than he is holy. God is not more kind than he is righteous. He's not more loving than he is just. And some people get that wrong, and then what they have is an unbalanced, untrue view of God. A characteristic of God that is that he is all that he is perfectly and wholly and completely. However, somehow, biblically speaking, I believe we can say that the love of God stands out in a special way. And love seems somehow to summarize everything that God is. 
This sacrificial giving that needed to happen needed to happen to satisfy God's justice. But in the end, it also reveals the love of God. Ultimately, this sacrificial giving of the Son is God giving himself to us, if you think about it. One and only that we read in the old translations is only begotten Son. And that refers to the second person of the Trinity. And it's showing us the uniqueness of Jesus, that there's no one like him. And it's showing us that he is actually God in the flesh. And then we get into a great, great mystery here. The Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but all fully God in all ways you can think of. And so there is a real sense in which we can say that God has given us himself in the giving of his Son. It's amazing. It's amazing. There was a minister who once met with a couple who was having marital difficulties. And like, I'll tell you, like most meetings of that kind, it was very, very difficult because most couples come in for help only after things have gotten very, very bad. You got to nip it in the bud. You got to get help earlier. It gets very, very difficult. Anyway, in the conversation... There was a lot of hardness and bitterness, a lot of lack of understanding. And at one point, the husband spoke up, just totally exasperated. I've given you everything, he told his wife. I've given you a, this new house that we built together. I've given you a new car. I've given you, you know, the, I've given you this and this and this. The list went on. And after he got it out, his wife said quietly, that's all true, John. You've given me everything but yourself. The greatest gift anyone can give is himself or herself. And then we look at Jesus, God incarnate, and we recognize that God gave the very, very best, himself actually. And we see that in the sacrificial nature of God's love. We're continuing to hold this gem before us and we notice next the design of God's love. The design or purpose is that whoever believes in him should not perish. The Bible seems to indicate, really makes quite clear that many in the human race will not turn to Jesus and they'll die unsaved to perish in the lake of fire. But God's design, God's purpose is that people will not perish, not be condemned, not die, but be saved. God purposed to have a people who should not perish by believing in God's Son. You know, people think, whether it's us or maybe even people out there, who is God? What's he like? Is he, is he really stern? Is he mean? Is he just looking for us to trip up? No, he is Love, that's what he is. And we see that in Jesus and we see it in the design of his love. I told you a few months ago about someone who was sharing with me how he was sharing his faith with someone who was an unbeliever. Hopefully that makes sense. 
guy was sharing his faith with a non-believer, and finally the non-Christian guy said, are you telling me that if I don't believe, I'm going to hell? And this guy, this Christian young man, I think with the Holy Spirit said, no, I'm telling you, you don't have to go to hell if you believe in Jesus. And that's exactly our message. It's good news, not bad news. We don't go around telling bad news. It's good news. Good news about the love of God that God has designed in Jesus that people don't have to perish. Is that good news or what? Seventh, the benefits of God's love. The benefits are is eternal life. God imparts eternal life to each one of his own. And that eternal life, we think about heaven in the future, and it means that, but it's not just for heaven after you die. It's also for when you're saved, when you're born again, like we talked about last week. It starts this life now. John talks in other parts of this gospel about life, life to the full, abundant life. This eternal life that we get eternal life, it impinges on our lives today and we experience the benefits of God's love now as well as for all eternity. Finally, the instrument of God's love. The instrument, how we get it. It's faith, belief. That is God's tool in a sense. It's a connecting point between us who are lost, and him, God, that we believe, that we have faith. Whoever believes, John 3, 16 says, faith is something that we are called to exercise. And of course, ultimately, it's a gift from him in the first place. To conclude, I want to share several practical matters I want, to, I want us to think about, given all that, how to respond to this gem of the love of God. And, and first of all, someone might ask, is the love of God for me? Because you know what? I've done some pretty rotten things in my life. I sometimes mostly hold it together in front of people, and I can put on a decent front a lot of the time, especially coming into church every Sunday, but deep in my heart, my thoughts my actions in secret, where no one can see me. I'm not so sure I'm very lovable. I'm not so sure this God of love would love me. And if that's you this morning, I'm very glad to tell you that the love of God is great enough to reach even you. You can't fall far enough to escape his reach. No sin is too great for him to forgive. No heart is too rotten and corrupt. He came exactly for people who need him and who know they need him and don't deserve him. So if you think this diamond of the love of God, it's so beautiful and attractive, but I'm so ugly in my sin, I don't deserve it. Thing is, you are right. You're exactly right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it, but it's for us anyway. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever, that's the offer of the gospel. It's for you too. The large scope of the love of God, the world. Don't leave here thinking it does not include you. You are included in the scope of God's love. Second, what do you do 
when you doubt the Father's love? Because sometimes we do. When we look at this world, when we look at trials in our own life, sometimes we don't notice his love or feel his love like others. And when that happens to you, and it does happen to Christians, I would say remember and look to the cross. In, in the mushiness, I guess, and, and fickleness of our own lives and our own feelings, our own ups and downs that we all have, our own trials. In the midst of all that, there is something concrete and objective that stands in the middle of history. The cross that was planted on Golgotha 2,000 years ago. The ultimate demonstration of God's love. And even when you don't feel his love, trust in the objective truth of things. God sent his son to go to the cross. And if he did that, he will surely love you too to the very end. Third, two more, two more reflections. If the instrument of God's love is faith, all right, if the instrument of God's love is faith, it's a tool connecting us there, then if we want to experience God's love, wouldn't it make sense that we are called to be built up in faith? If our faith is increased, we will know the love of God more. So do you do things that will be building up your faith? Why do we sometimes do the bare minimum in our worship habits, our devotional and prayer times? What if doing the bare minimum were blocking the experience of the love of God that we might have? Now, the love of God is great and powerful enough to reach through our spiritual laziness. It reaches through even our spiritual deadness, like we talked about last week. So I'm not saying you can stop the love of God from reaching you. No, God's love, his grace, it's irresistible. But I believe we can experience more or less of his love in our lives. And if he uses faith, belief, as the instrument of his love, then it fouls that we must be sure our faith is strong so that we can experience the full extent of his love in our lives. How are you being sure that your faith is being built up and strong? Where are your priorities in your life, in your time, your talents, your treasure? How do you, for example, organize and plan your Sundays, the day of rest and worship? I could, we could ask a lot of different questions. There are all sorts of ways to answer that. How am I concerned to be built up in the faith? In other words, how much do I want to experience the love of God in my life? How much do I want my children to experience the love of God? I think there's a correlation there between how much we are being built up in the faith and how much we experience the love of God. Because faith is the tool, the instrument of the love of God. Finally, the most natural response to God's love is us loving others. You know how they talk about how psychologically when people haven't been loved, when there's a deficiency there, it's very difficult to love others. Someone who has been treated poorly and is unloved, is stunted 
emotionally and not able to love others in a healthy way. But what John 3.16 tells us is we don't have to have a deficiency there. In fact, even when we do, if we have experienced a lack of love in our relationship, in our lives here on earth, even if that's the case, we have access to a divine love, a love from above that's overflowing and it's more than we could possibly grasp. A love from our Father in heaven. And with that well, with that source that is never going to run dry, with that we can love others. We can love others because we are loved. You don't have to be afraid to give love away because it continues to come to us from the Father up above and fill us, that love of God in Jesus. And so the people of God are the most loving people in all the world. A child of God in the workplace is the most loving person there. A student at school who knows the love of God, you're the most loving person in the hallways, in the classroom. I hope you've seen the diamond of the love of God this morning in new ways and Also, I want you to be assured that the love of God is for you too. When you doubt the love of God, and it inevitably happens, if you think you're the only one that sometimes doubts the love of God, you're wrong. But when you do, remember the cross. I'd also encourage you to be built up in the faith and so experience his love even more. And finally, love Others with his love. Christ has so much love he's given us. We have so much love to give. Amen.